Welcome to It Just So Happens, the alternative history show recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast. I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, with the help of my guest panel, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history. So today, that's the 23rd of July. Then we'll delve into some of the history of the town where today's show is taking place, which is, well, we've already been here before in 2019. It's the town made famous by its vans. Not the shoes, but the vans. Yes, it's Bedford. Hey. I love it. We're performing today as part of the Bedford Fringe Festival, just as the famous Edinburgh Fringe is sometimes called Ed Fringe. The festival here calls itself the Bed Fringe, making the festival especially popular with narcoleptics and teenagers. <laughs> the show is being recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, but we also have a live audience with us in the studio theatre at the performing arts space, the Quarry Theatre at St Luke's. Talking of quarries, who did we manage to dig up for this podcast? Well, let me introduce tonight's panellists. Please welcome Adam Vincent, <laughs> Tiffany Tristowen, Simon Munnery and Paul Revel. So our first guest is Adam Vincent. Adam is originally from Adelaide, Australia, but has moved up in the world as he now lives in Bedfordshire. Uh, behind the rugby club, he tells me. So. I am yes, the rugby club. Not just a euphemism, I believe. But Adam was a core writer of the three-time BAFTA-nominated show, The Last Leg. He's performed his own Edinburgh Fringe shows called... How Not to Kill Yourself When Living in the Suburbs, and Stuck in the Suburbs with You. Over to you, Adam. Thank you. <coughs> okay, hello. Uh, uh, so, what we need to know for my presentation is that uh, six weeks ago, uh, I told my wife, Nikki, that I would be doing a gig on the night we get back from our first holiday in 18 months. <coughs> and she said, really, Adam? You're going to do a gig on the first on the night back from your holiday. I went, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. And she said, that's sort of fine, but as long as you don't write any jokes on the holiday, so don't leave it to the last minute. And I went, I would never do that. That's ridiculous. I'm a professional. Cut to today, when a 44-year-old man pretended to take a shit in the Cotswolds while he Googled what happened on the 23rd of July <laughs> in history. Now, what you need to know is... Uh, and when I take a holiday, I'm not allowed to take a phone. So I had to, I had to do it in secret, so I had to take, you know, do this shit. Anyway, <laughs> or pretend to. And I, what I found out about on this day is that uh, on this day, in 1984, a woman by the name of Vanessa Williams was dethroned as Miss America because some new photos uh, were found of her in Penthouse magazine. And um, now, I'm lazy, I grant you that. However, I'm also very diligent. So whilst pretending to have a poo in the Cotswolds, I looked at these pictures. <laughs> I did my research. Right? Anyway, cut to, I'm trying to write jokes, and then I had to flush the toilet, and then we hop in the car and we go for a drive to uh, the local lake. That was about 12 o'clock this very day, on this very day. And uh, we're driving to the lake, and we cannot find the lake. So Nikki says, you're going to have to break out the emergency phone, because we don't use phones on holidays. And I said, okay. 
and we put it up, and I'll put it up on the console whilst driving the car, or she put it up on the console. She opens up the phone only to see the naked photos <laughs> of this Vanessa Williams. And my kids are in the back seat, and they can see, I've got like two kids, born and girl, and they can see the photos too. And Nikki's like, Adam, what is this? I said, oh, it's not what you think it is. And she goes, I think it's you being a pervert. I said, no, no, I'm not being a pervert. It's just I have to do this gig. And she said, not the gig that you're doing tonight. I went, yes, I have to do, I have to do some research. Sorry, within the, uh, within, whilst driving, I'm ex trying to explain what happened uh, to this woman, right? So I'll tell you what I told my kids. Firstly, they wanted to know who is this woman. So her name is Vanessa Williams. She's, uh, she's this woman who was the first black American woman to become nominated as Miss America. She won in 1983. She served for 50 weeks of her 52-week time as Miss America, but two weeks beforehand, before she was due to finish, the, uh, what happened was this penthouse magazine released these photos of her nude, right? Because, and she, these photos of her were taken when she was 18 and she was a photographer's assistant and she, uh, she was told, look, just take these, they're nice, tasteful photos in a silhouette. And uh, she took them and then this guy released the photos into the wild and she lost her job. And I'm telling this to my kids and they say, what is Miss America? I said, Miss America happened, it started in 1920, right when women got the right to vote. Uh, the suffragettes, they used pageantry and the sash to say women should be able to vote, and that got them the vote, right? So around the same time, the powers that be, namely men, decided, well, you can have the vote, but we're going to steal that pageantry and we're going to suppress women by creating this Miss America title where we're going to give you the, keep the sash, but we're going to have Miss New York or Miss Texas, and we're going to make you wear bathers and ask some questions and do a twirls and whatnot, and we will discover who is, you know, the Miss America. Basically, on one hand, the sash was allowed to create women who could vote, on the other hand, it was allowed to create women who were, <coughs> can, you know, were basically forced to, uh, you know, head off with it. You know, it just wasn't very fair, was it? <laughs> it was ridiculous, and they were told to, uh, told to uh, do this. Anyway, this woman, uh, black women weren't even allowed to do it up until like 1950s, so uh, Vanessa decides I'm going to do it, she has a crack, she wins. Apparently she was the best there ever was, but these photos leak, and then you know, her, her time is done. Now I said to my kid whilst driving, I said the reason if this had happened like in today's world, Twitter would have been all over this, the photographer would have been me too. You know, she would have become this star. I mean, Paris Hilton some, sucked some guy up in a hotel when MySpace was like big and she became even bigger than she was is now, right? So if Vanessa, I can't believe I just said suck someone up in a hotel, I really apologise about that. <laughs> Vanessa uh, Williams gets caught, but there's no internet. The information's gone. Right? It's just the powers that be can, can control the information. So, uh, she, you know, basically she loses her career and she fights back and she ends up becoming a singer and it takes her years, but she gets to be this most, you know, amazing professional entertainer. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, uh, there was no internet. So it just it killed her then and there for, for a brief period of time. For another, maybe two, 20 years, whatever. Anyway, I'm telling this to my wife and I'm freaking out going, this is what happens when you censor information. And, you know, you, and I get, I'm getting more and more worked up and Nikki's like, this is why I told you not to bring the phone. And uh, anyway, that, that, that happened. That's it. That's all I've got. <laughs> I, I didn't do my homework, all right? I'm just, I'm a 44-year-old guy struggling and I didn't do my homework. Yeah, I apologise. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. you had, a, had a good holiday. Anyway. <laughs> I'm going to do little segue pieces between the panellists. So on this day in 1892, Haile Selassie was born. So questions to the panel, who was the emperor of, or where was the emperor of? Ethiopia. Ethiopia, yes indeed. He was the regent's plenipotentiary for 14 years before becoming emperor 
from 1930 to 1974. He was also known as Rastafari Makinen, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, what do some members of the Rastafari movement believe highly about Haile Selassie? What this is way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they believe that he was, or is, I'm not sure which, was God incarnate, the Messiah, who will lead the prophets of Africa and the African diaspora to freedom, based on prophecies in the book of Revelation. Uh, the movement was founded in Jamaica in about 1930 and influenced by Marcus Garvey's African redemption movement. Uh, they have followers estimated to be between 700,000 and 1 million. Um, Haile Selassie himself visited Jamaica in 1966 and approximately 100,000 Rastafari from all over Jamaica went to greet him at the airport and he never rebuked them for their belief in him as God. Bob Marley's wife Rita converted to the Rastafari faith after seeing Haile Selassie on his Jamaican trip and she thought, or she claimed, that she'd seen stigmata prints on Haile Selassie's hands marks of Christ's hands when nailed to the cross. Bob Marley was then converted by his wife to the faith and posthumously released song that he wrote, Iron Lion Zion, refers to Haile Selassie. Uh, in one tour abroad in 1924, Selassie visited the Armenian Monastery of Jerusalem. There he adopted 40 Armenian orphans who had lost their parents. Uh, what happened to the orphans, do you think? Did he eat them? <laughs> no. Did one win medals at running? Uh, that's, that's, that is, I, I like your guess. I like oh, your guess. But I thought you were close, you, you wouldn't know the answer to this, I have to admit. They, they later formed the Imperial Brass Band. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh yeah, that. So, yeah, obviously, when you, when you think about it, yeah. So Italy invaded his country in World War II, so he had to go into exile. Uh, in which country did Haile Selassie live? Here. Yes, <laughs> correct. Do you want to join the panel? Um, yes, he lived in Fairfield House in Bath between 1936 to 41, and he ended up buying the house. And then when he returned to Ethiopia, he donated the house to the city of Bath. So I know it's meant to be about Bedford, but I'm talking about Bath now. Um, after the defeat of Italy, he returned to his country where he lived until he was murdered in August 1975. There was famine and then the 1973 oil crisis, and that led to a military coup. And he was under house arrest when he was murdered. It's not a happy ending for him. But people still believe he was God. So, interesting. Anyway, our second guest is Tiffany Chothaun. Tiffany is a comedian with a Cornish surname, but she hails from Luton. She came through comedy courses with showcases at the Roving Comedy Night, which kicks off at the Tringe Festival, and also at London's Comedy Store. She likes to tackle dark subjects, which apparently is to be expected from a Lutonian. <laughs> Tiffany performs gigs around Bedford with bears and tails. She claims to be not a lover of history, but a uh, very welcome on the panel tonight. Geography was a chosen subject, but over to you for your little bit piece of history now, Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you. So, on this day, back in 1996, the VSE scale was extended after lab research showed that mad cow disease could also be transmitted to sheep. VSE, according to the always accurate information source Wikipedia, is commonly known as mad cow disease an incurable fatal disease of cattle. The term mad cow is also known for describing those that are barking mad, bonkers, crackers, cuckoo. It's a term often given to women, that daft old cow, and you can see why given other historical events that took place on this day. Two years ago in 2019, the Daily Mail, another accurate news source, had the headline, furious woman shocks fellow passengers by smashing laptop onto her boyfriend's head after he looked at another woman on a plane. 
seems fair to me. <laughs> the article read, the dispute culminates in the angry woman chasing her boyfriend, known as Memo, down the aisle of the American Airlines flight. Americans being over the top, well, I never. <laughs> the flight was set to depart from Miami to LA with a Dell laptop, the details are important, smashing him over the head with it. The woman shouted, yeah, you better believe that I wear the F in nuts in public. I'm not sure what that means. She threatens boyfriend Memo, if he doesn't come with her, he'll never see her again. Thank God. Men, try not to see it, to look at other women in front of your lady. I guess he never got the memo. The wrong part. You might think she was barking mad, although according to Newsweek, yep, on July 23, 2016, Amanda Teague, who worked as a Jack Sparrow impersonator in Ireland, married her husband, Jack Teague, on a small boat in the Atlantic Ocean. Ah. The weather was stormy and waves rocked the vessel violently. She said, I do, in a white gown and veil, and someone said it back, but it wasn't the man she was about to marry. He was already dead. Dun, dun, dun. Teague made headlines after news broke that she married the ghost of a 300-year-old pirate. Well, they say age is just a number. She claims her spiritual relationship back began in 2015 when she was lying in bed at home and sensed his presence. <laughs> <laughs> after six months of continued contact with the ghost, she developed feelings for him and the two made plans to officiate their love for each other. I guess an imaginary friend wasn't enough for Amanda. Teague described their chemistry as incredible and says that Jack is the best sex she's ever had. Well, someone thinks hardly of themselves. Their wedding was similar to the one at a registry office in the sense that it was short, functional, and small. No doubt it was small about the green being there. We sailed into international waters so we could legally marry. It's not legal in the UK or Ireland to marry a deceased person. So we speak, spoke to some lawyers and did it officially, she said. I like how often she uses the word we. A lawyer said it's not illegal, it's not a criminal act, but the government doesn't recognise it. They won't be allowed the benefits of a married couple. Benefits of a marriage? Not sure there are any. <laughs> Teague insists her husband's physical existence was the inspiration for the fictional character Jack Sparrow, who features in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise. Funny, that could be any looking ghost, has to be Jack Sparrow, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, ghost relationships and marriages are not uncommon. Cornwall Live reported those, a story of women who were deep in the throes of paranormal passion. I thought a story might link back to my Cornish roots, my Luton roots, but not my Cornish roots. A 27-year-old spiritual counsellor from Bristol told the local paper about her sexual encounters with 20 different ghosts. During an appearance on ITV this morning, she described to viewers her ritual to seduce ghosts, which involved wearing sexy lingerie. Well, they, leave, they say leave science imagination, but I think that's taken a bit too far. But don't lose your faith in women, though. We're not all daft. Take a bank of Trump. On this day in 2019, Ivanka uh, tweeted... Congratulations, Boris Johnson, on becoming the next Prime Minister on the, of the United Kingston. <laughs> NBC reported the gaff drew laughs on Twitter where Britons were quick to point out her mistake. Kingston is the capital of Jamaica and Kingston-upon-Thames is a leafy area southwest of London. Britain's been unkind on social media? No. <coughs> Hashtag be kind. Former President Donald Trump often includes spelling mistakes and typos in his tweets. Trump being accurate? No. Hashtag fake news. I researched what happened today and I wondered if tweet, uh, Trump had tweeted anything, but then I remembered, and somebody who works in marketing, his Twitter was um, cancelled. He doesn't have Twitter anymore, so I'm going to end on that positive note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tiffany. I like the way you segued uh, Jamaica into that as well. Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. We had, we had no, no prior warning of that, I think. So, uh, second segue, so question straight away to the panel. What spherical object with a diameter of 88 centimetres and weighing 77 kilos was launched from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, Florida, on 10th of July, 1962? A weather balloon. A weather balloon, no. 
satellite. A satellite, yes, it was. Anything in particular? Telstar. It was, it was. Well done. Um, a point to I you. I know all the satellites. <laughs> <laughs> it was Telstar 1. And, and so what was significant about Telstar 1 in, in terms of history? No, 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 no. Oh, I'm going to come to that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was... Uh, the next day, it relayed the very first, although non-public, television pictures between two sites, uh, the satellite up in the sky there, or in space. And then on this day in 1962, at 3pm EDT, it re relayed the first publicly available live transatlantic television signal. And that first broadcast featured uh, CBS's Walter Cronkite and NBC's Chet Huntley in New York, and the BBC's Richard Dimbleby in Brussels. And the first pictures were of the Statue of Liberty, the Eiffel Tower, and it was meant to have remarks by the President, JFK, but the signal was acquired before the President was ready, so the lead-in time was filled with a short segment of a televised game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Chicago Cubs, just to keep things busy. So it wasn't that slick in terms of TV. Um, from there, it kind of went around the world, and transmissions were restricted to just 30 minutes because Telstar was going around in a medium-Earth orbit and wasn't always visible to the ground stations. So again, they hadn't thought that bit through. But the Washington segment did eventually include remarks by JFK, and he was talking about the price of the American dollar, and it was causing concern in Europe. So when Kennedy de denied that the US would devalue the dollar, it immediately strengthened on the world markets. And Cronkite later said that we all glimpsed something of the true power of the instrument that we had wrought. Something we take for granted nowadays, of course. So Telstar 2, you know about that one as well, Simon. Uh, it was al almost identical communication satellite launched in '63. But what happened to Telstar One? Sad face. Still up there. Oh, sorry. It's still up there. It is still up there, as is Telstar Two. Yes. Uh, so a lot of these satellites, they kind of come down to earth, don't they? But they are still up there. What happened was um, because it was in the middle of the Cold War, nuclear bombs were being let off uh, in space as sort of test weapons. And that energised the Earth's Van Allen belts and, and knocked out the trans transistors of, the, uh, of the, these poor satellites. Uh, Wait a minute, they were setting off nuclear weapons in space? Well, they were doing like tests, you know, like, like they did on, the, on the Christmas Island and so on. The UK did, they were doing it in space as well, and it was mucking up the atmosphere, basically. I did not know that. Yeah, so this is what this show's all about. <laughs> You're here for the comedy, they're here for the education. So. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we come to the instrumental piece called Telstar. What, what do you know about it then? Apart from it going ding 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 ding. Uh, was it the sh shadow? No. It was the tornadoes. <laughs> you more than you know more than the rest of us. Um, it was, and it was uh, written and produced by Joe Meek in his studio in a small flat above a shop in Holloway Road, in, in North London. It was an immediate hit after its release. It remained in the UK singles chart for 25 weeks, five of them at number one, and in the American charts for 16 weeks, where it reached number one at the end of the year. Uh, it was estimated to have sold at least 5 million copies worldwide, and it was the very first US number one by a British group. So there you go for your pub quiz, if, if and when we get back to the pubs. So, our third guest. You already had a hint here. It's Simon Munnery. Uh, back in the day, from according to Wikipedia, Simon programmed video games, including several for the ZX81. He's better known as a master of satirical and surreal comedy, though. He's performed as himself and as Alan Parker, Urban Warrior, and The League Against Tedium, and alongside acts such as Steve Coogan, Stuart Lee, and Johnny Vegas. Haven't we all? Um, his show Attention Scum featured on BBC One and also on BBC Two. So, over to you, Simon. Thank you. 
It was just on BBC Two. Oh, was it? <laughs> no, you just can't believe what you read on the internet, can you? No, no, no. <laughs> yes, uh, so on, on this day, I, I'm exactly the same mode as well. I've spent the day looking up what happened on this day. <laughs> and um, I've written down some things that have happened. Uh, for example, in 1148, uh, the... Um, the siege of Damascus by the Second Crusade began, and then it ended four days later. It's not much of a siege, is it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> four days. I mean, <laughs> they just gave up. Um, 1745, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, the pretender to the throne, arrived at Eriskay in the Hebrides. Okay, and. Um, <laughs> In 1858, the Jewish Disability Removal Act was passed by Parliament. And I, that just boggled my mind. What? Jewish Disability Removal Act? Like, as if Parliament had the ability to remove disabilities from people of a certain religion by Act of Parliament. <laughs> I suppose you could just say, oh, you're not disabled anymore. You've lost that status. So don't. But then it, it turns out it was. Um, what it actually is, is uh, that before that, it had been, been illegal. You couldn't be uh, an MP if you were Jewish. And uh, they repealed it. So basically, so it was a good thing. It was um, allowing uh, Jewish people to become MPs. Uh, the typewriter, the first typewriter, was um, uh, patented. All good news. Amy <laughs> <laughs> uh, Winehouse died on this day. It's very sad. Um, and I, I, I used to live in Camden around the time she did, uh, but I never met her. But I did meet Madonna once, so I thought I'd tell you that anecdote. <laughs> Good. Persons. So I was doing some gigs on this day, actually, as it turns out. Um, <coughs> no, I was doing some gigs at the, the show at the ICA Institute of Contemporary Art, and um, I'd done f five nights or something, and uh, finished. Gone well, thanks for asking. <laughs> the, the stage manager says, you, you coming back tomorrow night? There's a party. Madonna's going to be here. And I went, no, we've got a gig in Brighton. Um, well, I was driving back through the centre of London, and I went, oh, pop in. And I saw the stage manager, and he gave me a pass. And it was a private party for a, a, a record uh, label launch for bands. Anyway, the, the, I didn't want to meet Madonna. I wasn't particularly, I like Cindy Lauper. Um, <laughs> Back in the day, but um, I know I wasn't particularly a fan of Madonna or anything. This is how I came to meet Madonna. So I was sitting there in the foyer, and I saw something I'd never seen before, which is two security men came down the stairs from uh, and swept out the toilets. I went in the toilets and removed people from the toilets. Why did they do that? They were clearly security. Right? They did that because then Madonna came down the stairs, and there mustn't be any possibility of someone accidentally meeting Madonna. And it was that moment I could see the ambition, I want to meet Madonna, <laughs> because it's hard. Right? And then Madonna, so the, the, the venue has been, they well, got rid of all the seats, and it's a bit sort of rock and roll, and there's bands on there. But half the people watching the bands, the other half were looking up in the balcony, where Madonna is sitting, with three security men each side of her, and this stand, the, the stage manager, who I knew, and even he can't meet Madonna, because there's three security guards in the way. You're all right, mate? Um, and then I met a friend, well, he preferred the term dealer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I, I want to meet Madonna. Now, I thought, well, she's coming down, they're all in, in there, there's no way you can get through the three security men. I thought, well, she came down the stairs, right? I'll go up the stairs and wait. 
So I went up the stairs uh, and it was the green room. And I'd never been in the green room because I just I was used to just sort of, um, sit backstage and go on and do the show. But I wasn't entitled to be in the green room. Anyway, I got in the green room, um, sort of the room, and there's a, a, a waitress there and she said, Oh, well, Simon, how are you? I'm all right. I said, I just want to meet with Donna. She said, Whatever. And um, so I got some wine. There was loads of free wine and just hid behind the sofa, um, just <laughs> <laughs> drinking wine till people started to come in and, and circulate around. And at some point, I just stood up and uh, saw it. And I, it turns out I knew a couple of people. Um, one of the super furry animals was there as a band. Um, and uh, anyway, we won, we go round, and Madonna's sitting in the middle on a, on a sofa, there's a coffee table, and she's chatting to a couple of people, and everyone's walking around talking about anything except Madonna. She's like the sun, and we're the planets. We're just orbiting around, no, no, don't even look at her. Um, and I'm getting, I don't know, almost a bottle of wine now, I'm getting quite drunk, I thought, oh, I better get on with this, haven't I? And at, at one point, I remember, I noticed my shoelaces undone, and I went down to tie it up. And on the way up, my nose brushed Natalie and Brooklyn's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to report. Anyway, to me it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah never mind, Natalie. <laughs> I want because it was so hard. So eventually I thought, well, you know, it's getting late now. Let's get, let's get it over with. So I just leant over the table. She was, she was on the other side of this coffee table. She was sitting there. I leant over and I said, hello. She stopped her conversation she was having with someone else. She turned back to me and she said, hello. Then there was a lull, because <laughs> I hadn't thought this far ahead. <laughs> hello. And then, then she said, do I know you? Uh, which I could have gone from somewhere. It's one of her songs at the time. Uh, I just, I just to the honest truth, no. <laughs> and then uh, she turned back slowly and, and carried on with the rest of her life. And I, I was left just hanging over this table, and even though I stood up again, I, I just didn't, I felt shorter. <laughs> I just left the room utterly ashamed and, uh, of, uh, you know, wasting someone's life. <laughs> so I'm glad they got that out of the way. That's <laughs> <laughs> me finished. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Well, my next segue is indeed about Amy Winehouse. Um, I've got two on this stage for her. In 2008, a waxwork model of her was unveiled at Madame Two Swords. Who do you think unveiled the model? Can't be like her dad, can it? It was. It was, it was yeah, her mum and dad. Yeah, yes, it was yeah. Mitch and Janice. There you go. Point to you. <laughs> Two leaders now equal point. Uh, what had happened to her husband, Blake Fielder Civil, earlier in the week? Imprisoned. Yes, yes. Uh, 27 months in jail for attacking a pub landlord and perverting the course of justice. In that order, I assume. It is, in fact, of course, 10 years to the day since Amy Winehouse was found dead at her North London home. In 2011, she was 27. The trouble singer had had a long battle with drink and drugs, which had overshadowed her recent musical career. But looking back at her life, when she was 10, she was in a rap duo with her childhood best friend, Juliet Ashby, and they were called Sweet and Sour. Amy won a scholarship to the Sylvia Young Theatre School, but she did not graduate. In fact, she was expelled. Why do you think she was expelled? Drinking. Uh, it's not on my list. Yeah. Drugs. It's not on my list. That's a joke, of course. Fornicating. <laughs> That's not on my list either, no. Oh. So, so, do you want to have a guess? Or she just like kick off, like swear and stuff? Well, she didn't apply herself, which sounds like the, the standard kind of boring apply. thing, but also for piercing her nose. Mm. 
can it was that drastic. Yeah. Um, here's, here's a little quiz for you. So Winehouse's first tattoo was of Betty Boop, which she had inked on her back when she was 15. So true or false, are any of these also Amy's tattoos? First of all, a Native American feather. What do you reckon? It's false from me. Yeah, I'm going to say no. Well, just to be different, I'm going to say correct. It's correct, yes. So true. I'm there, true, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, here's, here's, here's a second one. A horseshoe. Yes. False. False. Yes. It's true. Wine and a house. False. False. Why not? Let's go. True. No, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> wine house. Uh, yeah, wine house. And uh, what else? I'll pick out uh, one more. A lightning bolt. I'll go true on that. False. False. It's true. Yeah. Uh, she once heckled Bono at the Q Music Awards while he was giving an acceptance speech. How did Bono respond? Did he download one of his albums? <laughs> <laughs> Just to punish everyone else. So. Um, yeah, I can't do the accent, but he said, shut up, I don't give a fuck. So there you go. Very well thought out heckle there. Um, and finally, how tall do you think was Amy's beehive? In inches. <laughs> Eleven. Eight. Eight. Thirteen. Nine. Oh, no, you were closest with eight. It's six and a half inches high. There you go, so. uh, some trivia there for Amy Winehouse. So uh, over to our fourth guest, it's Paul Revel. Paul's an award-winning storytelling comedian who often in intertwines personal anecdotes with observations and punchlines. One anecdote may well relate to the comedy cruise he organised on the John Bunyan community boats, which almost led to its sinking. Uh, but now's not the time. Maybe a metaphor for your comedy career, I don't know. But uh, he runs Castle Comedy in Bedfordshire, which has a reputation for being one of the finest small independent comedy clubs in the country. Over to you, Paul. Please. Thank you. Um, so it just so happens, uh, on July 23rd, 1904, at the St. Louis World Fair, something was invented that fitted perfectly into the American dream. The dream that everything should be bigger in America. On that day, the ice cream cone was invented. This was the first time that ice cream could be carried anywhere thanks to an edible receptacle. Last year, the US ate 2.7 billion litres of ice cream, with the waffle cone being the most popular container. The average American man weighed 160 pounds in 1904, but thanks to the ice cream cone, the average American in 2021 is now much bigger at 195 pounds. Ice cream was invented in the second century BC, but for a thousand years it was nothing really without the cone. It's very difficult to hold ice cream for long in your hands. <laughs> Before 1904, ice cream was predominantly served in glass bowls, which were expensive, needed collecting, washing up, and were not edible. Ice cream was like a single man in a disco at midnight, desperately searching for a partner. The Library of Congress credits the American Charles E. Menches with creating the ice cream cone on July 23rd, 1904 when he conceived the idea of filling a pastry cone with two scoops of ice cream and thereby invented the ice cream cone. This is the moment where ice cream cones became mainstream.
God bless America for giving us food served in food. <laughs> the ice cream cone is now the world's favourite cone. Without the ice cream cone, the world of cones is associated with misery. <laughs> Examples being motorway roadwork cones and the cones placed around animals' heads after an operation. <laughs> However, the story of the ice cream cone may not be quite that simple. It is also claimed that a Syrian named Arnold Fornitude was running an ice cream booth at the St. Louis World Fair as well. When he ran short on glass cups, he noticed he was next to a waffle vendor by the name of Ernest Hamwi. The enterprising Syrian purchased some of Hamwi's waffles. Fornitude then rolled the waffles into cones to hold his ice cream. So, what is the truth? Did an American invent the ice cream cone? Or did an American steal the idea from a Syrian, airbrush him from history, and take it as their own? <laughs> Either way, it's the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. So we come now to the second half of the show where we uncover some alternative histories of Bedford, as we're here now. So Bedford gets its name from Bedder, the name of a Saxon chief, with the settlement being situated at a crossing of the river Great Ouse, it was decided to call it Bedder Ford. This was, however, confusing for people who were looking for the Betty Ford Clinic, <laughs> so it was decided to shorten the name to Bedford. The town is thought to have been the burial place of Offer of Mercia, and in 919, in the reign of Edward the Elder, a fortress was built. In the 10th century, Bedford had a weekly market and a mint before the Danes pillaged in 1010. Those pesky Danes would do anything for a pillage, even if it was just a mint. <laughs> the main industry in medieval Bedford was making wool. Wool was woven, then fulled, meaning it was cleaned and then thickened by pounding in a mixture of clay and water before being dyed. In 1689, the Great Ooze was made navigable as far as Bedford, which was a huge boost to the town, as at the time it was the cheapest and easiest way of transporting goods. And so Bedford began to grow more rapidly. Great Ooze is not to be confused with the plague and any weeping sores. In the 18th century, Bedford became known for its brewing industry and the first bank in Bedford opened in 1799. Potted history there. But in spite of all this growth and offer having received a burial back in the 8th century, the first cemetery didn't open in Bedford until 1855, apparently. So there must have been quite a backlog. <laughs> More recently, the town was made famous by its two factories. So one where they made the cars, the Bedford cars, and the one where they made those shoes, the Bedford vans. So, uh, educate the people on the podcast, please. Why is Bedford's telephone number so easy to remember? Oh, it's 01234. It's 01234. So, a question that I don't know the answer to. Has any local taxi firm claimed the number 01234567890? Don't no, think no. so, no. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I should have done. I'm missing a trick there. So, uh, so that's, that's very positive history of Bedford, but uh, now some sort of topical things or people associated with Bedford. So the first one is the never had it so good speech. So, panel, which British Prime Minister made this famous political speech where they claimed that most of our people have never had it so good? It was a female, wasn't it? No, no, no. That was a male. Yes, thank you, panel. <laughs> yes, Harold Macmillan. Uh, on the 20th of July, so almost today, 1957, he was making an optimistic speech telling fellow Conservatives how great things were under a Conservative government. 
while speaking at a Tory rally in Bedford to mark 25 years' service by the local MP for mid-Bedfordshire, Mr Lennox Boyd. What was Mr Lennox Boyd's position in government at the time? They don't have it anymore, this position. Don't spot it. Nope. He was Colonial Secretary, as I got here. So fantastic. We're very well educated audience there. I'm very impressed. Oh my gosh. Um, we don't have one of those anymore, do we? Yeah. Do we point these this way? <laughs> so in his speech, Macmillan also said, You will see a state of prosperity such as we have never had in my lifetime, nor indeed in the history of this country. And he reminded his audience not to forget that under a Labour government, there would be rationing, shortages, inflation, and one crisis after another in our international trade. Uh, and that was even before the leader of the opposition was disastrously seen eating a bacon sandwich in public, <laughs> which in 1957 was Hugh Gates' school. But talking of edible items, big clue here, uh, what would you do with a Bedford clanger? Oh, you'd chop down on it. <laughs> it's got everything. So you're, you're, you're locals, aren't you? You tell me about the Bedford Clanger, because I've never heard of it before. So. I don't know about it, being from Australia, but That's I would fine. imagine it's wrapped in chocolate. Is that a guess? No. What's it? What, man? Well, in what? Australia, we've got, a, we've got a clanger in Australia. It's like a, a crunchy thing with a chocolate coating. Uh, a, a, a clanger is a, is a suet like pastry, like a long sausage roll, but its main unique selling point is it has both main and dessert in one hand. Mm, yeah. So sweet and savoury at the same time. Well, there you go. Yeah. Good. So who, who's, who's eaten a bed, Bedford clam? Yeah. Mm, not as many as I expected. I'll take it you've had one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do so they still make the Bedford Yeah, Gunn's Bakery. Oh, yeah. Very, uh, very high street. street. Yeah. Okay. Um, so th what I've got here is, yeah, sweet and savoury pastries, uh, suet crust, definitely. Uh, so what about the name? Where does the name, why is it called a clanger? I mean, uh, is, it, is it something you can have with a soup dragon? In fact, a clanger. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got some rather sort of like carry-on innuendo about okay, the clanger. Okay, that sounds good. It says, um, the right 19th century English dialect dictionary recorded the phrase clung dumplings <laughs> from Bedfordshire, citing clungy and clangy as adjectives meaning heavy or close textured. So hence, heavy suet pudding. Right. And um, it is, is it quite heavy it on, is, on the yeah, tummy? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was for workers originally to go out to the field, so they needed right. all their calories in, in one large Greg's sausage roll type thing. And, and do you eat it cold or hot? Uh, either. Either. Lukewarm. I knew they wrapped it in paper and they, they put it in... They wrapped it in paper and then they used to put it in I didn't know cow pats were involved. So for the podcast, wow. someone in the audience suggested putting it in a cow pat. <laughs> uh, but for, but <laughs> for warmth... Yes. Uh, I'm not sure about the, the aroma of the cow pat. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, I, uh, yeah. I believe the, the paper yeah. surface would protect it, but then it, it kept it as sort of a, a nice warm... So it has to be a... a, a a freshly laid cow pup, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So looking out for a cow that's about to. Yeah. Can I just ask, did yeah. anything else get wrapped in cow pats? Like it is a um, I'm not sure if corn pasties would. Oh, this is controversial now. Why yeah. stop? <laughs> we'll save that one for the Plymouth edition. It's Plymouth, isn't corn, is it? Yeah, or the Devon. Yeah. No, sorry. Uh, we'll save it for the yeah. Penzance, I mean. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that, that wouldn't go down well in Cornwall, would it? What, have I got anything else in here? So, yes, apparently. Uh, 
it was also associated with the hat makers of the Luton district. I don't know if you're aware of that, being a Lutonian, um, and uh, sort of in other rural parts of other nearby counties. A similar dumpling in Buckinghamshire was known as a bacon badger. So I'm sure you can make, make something out of that as well in terms of innuendos. The term badger relating to a former term for a dealer in flour. I've done, um, I've got Gums Bakery's uh, classic combination and then I've um, invented a couple of my own, if you want to hear them. Yeah, so sure. gum, Gums do a beef, rhubarb and custard and they do a modern vegetable curry and mango and um, obviously, so Italian heritage in Bedford, if it was me, I would do a veal with tiramisu. Um, <laughs> I, and then I've just got a couple of my favourites, which I think I could knock up in my kitchen. Um, I've gone for a Big Mac and apple pie and a baked beans and mullah rice. <laughs> <laughs> baked beans and mullah rice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. yeah. You should open up a stall somewhere and see, yeah, what, see, gums, see what sells. Gums yeah. on the high street are quaking. <laughs> <on the beans. laughs> um, so some of the famous people from Bedford, and, and there are quite a number. So first of all, uh, Paula Radcliffe. Uh, runner Paula Radcliffe was born in 1973. She was actually the grandniece of 1920 Olympic silver medalist Charlotte Radcliffe. But at the age of 12, that's when she moved to Oakley, which is just four miles outside of Bedford Centre. And she became a member of the Bedford and County Athletics Club. She took up running at the age of seven, influenced by her father, who was a keen amateur marathon runner. Um, in 1992, she, she discovered that she suffers from anemia and was diagnosed with exercise-induced asthma at the age of 14 uh, after blacking out whilst training. Um, she graduated from Loughborough Universities with a first-class honours degree in modern European studies, which is quite impressive. So has, has anyone met Paula? Any anecdotes about her? From Driven down her way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she got road pain off. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was, I was, yes, so good, good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you clarified that one. Yeah. The only thing I've, I've got is, is she, for such a celebrated athlete, it was um, she. She was voted um, the top running moment in history in the UK, which is incredible. You'd think that would be breaking the the marathon world record or, or winning the world championships, but it's actually about stopping on mile twenty for a poo, yeah. Um, yeah. which was. Um, yeah, so that was her accolade, which is, seems a little bit of a shame. But then she wrapped the clanger in it. She <laughs> did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. Yes, definitely. Get a point for that, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I've got that she won the London of the Year in 2016, but Bedford has never given her an award, only a road. Only a road. What is, oh, well, yeah. what, what is Paula Radcliffe Way like? Is it, is fast. It yeah. Very fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, about as fast as a, as a woman can run. Yeah. Yes. It's good. It's a good as fast as that, yeah. Smooth. But, no, and what, what was no it? Potholes. What was it before? So was it new? Or was it coursing? Oh, so it wasn't yeah. coursing the house before. Right. So. Hmm. It's one of the better roads in Bedford, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's got something then, isn't it? The parts of the B660 are superb. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's not 26 miles long, I take it. It's unlikely they'd build a 26 mile road. Well, yeah, yeah. okay. well, should we move on from that one then? Yes. So, um, also another famous son from Bedford. Who was John Elton, not Elton John, but John Elton, Le Masurier Howlili, better known as? 
John Le Mazuri. Indeed, yes. Um, he was the actor known as John Le Mazuri. Perhaps best remembered for his role in the BBC comedy Dad's Army. And what role did he play? I had to think about this. Sergeant Wilson. Sergeant Wilson. First name? John. No. no. What did Pike call him? Uncle Arthur. Uncle Arthur, yes. yes. Uh, there's, there's a great little piece which I haven't actually got here, but um, where Manorin says, So why does she, why does she call you, well, why does he call you uncle? And, and he sort of says, Oh, well, you know, I sort of, she has my rational book and we, we share things. And Manorin goes, Like what? And he goes, sort of stutters over it and tries to change the subject. So. Um, but he sometimes says towards the end of an episode, Well, it's all been rather lovely, which I think is a lovely phrase in itself. But uh, his first appearance in television was way back in 1938, which I think is quite impressive in itself, when the BBC broadcast of The Marvellous History of St Bernard. During the Second World War, equally impressive, he was posted to British India as a captain with the Royal Tank Regiment. And then following the war, he returned to acting and made his film debut in 1948 and appeared in more than 120 different films. He was married three times. Does anyone know who any of his wives were? Hattie Jakes, yes, he was married to Hattie Jakes. Yeah. She was married to Eric Sykes. Well, there were multiple marriages all around, I'm guessing. So. But not at the same time. <laughs> yes, not, no bigamy going on. Yes. So any, any, I don't suppose anyone would have met him, possibly. He died in 1983, I believe. I was seven. So and I you were in Australia? <coughs> yeah, yeah, I've got no so idea. No chance. Is, but I'm sure he's going to say hello, darling. He had a grandfather of the same name who was quite famous uh, war veteran. Um, and he said um, that if he ever met his granddad or something, he'd be like scared of him or be pretty intimidated. So, yeah, that, was Google, that was Google about half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and he remembered it just long enough. Okay. Yeah, that's it, that's gone. <laughs> <laughs> you can forget it now. Um, so uh, yet another famous son from Bedford. What a, what a place Bedford is. Uh, Ronnie Barker. So, uh, yeah, Ronald William George Barker, OBE, famous for his roles in comedy series. You could name Porridge, uh, The Two Ronnies, Open All Hours, but of course his comedy history went further back than that as well. Here are some lovely quotes from The Two Ronnies, which made me laugh, and, and hopefully for yourselves as well. So, in a packed programme tonight, we'll be talking to an out-of-work contortionist who says he can no longer make ends meet. <laughs> But first the news. The House of Commons was sealed off today after police chased an escaped lunatic through the front door during Prime Minister's question time. A spokesman at Scotland Yard said it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. <laughs> We'd hoped to have been bringing you Arthur the Human Chameleon, but this afternoon he crawled across a tartan rug and died of exhaustion. <laughs> And there was a strange happening during a performance of Algar's Sea Pictures at a concert hall in Bermuda tonight, when a man playing the triangle disappeared. <laughs> Anyone meet Ronnie Barker? I met Ronnie Barker. Wow. Oh, um, here's an anecdote coming up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my, my dad's a plumber, and uh, one of his famous reasons, he put Ronnie Barker's heating in. Uh, many, and whenever Ronnie Barker used to mention plumbers, he always, my dad always thought it was about him. Um, it, it probably wasn't. Any, I, one, once I was, um, one and only time I was invited to the BBC TV Christmas party because uh, I had a pilot on, um, uh, which was never made into a series, but uh, although it was nominated for an award. Who knows why? Anyway, uh, I thought, and then Ronnie Mark was there, and I thought, 
I said, I went up to him and said, I think my dad put you eating it. And he said, ow. And just blanked me. Uh, yeah, that wasn't the worst part of the evening. The worst part was when I, um, I just, uh, well, I got very drunk and I was, I was lying, I fell over. I was on the floor. Um, and I remember looking up and thinking, oh, that's Ben Elton. <laughs> probably touch his shoe from here. <laughs> he wouldn't even notice. Well, well I'm here, aren't I? And I was too drunk to get up, really. So I just stretched out my hand and just touched. Again, I wasn't a fan of Ben Elton. It was just he was there. Just touched his shoe. And he, but unfortunately, he did. He looked down. He saw me doing it. And it was kind of a... It was like he expected it to happen. <laughs> oh, they're touching my shoe now. Uh, dreadful times. But, yeah. Uh, so he didn't... He didn't remember um, Ronnie Mark. What did, what did your dad say about him? Was he, was he, did he make him a cup of tea? Was he nice? Yeah, fine. But, um, yeah, he put his heating in. And before the heating was in, he used to use cow packs to heat it. It was cow packs, yeah. 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 Apparently, that's, that's de rigueur around yeah. it. It's the Bedford way. <laughs> it's the Bedford way, yes. <laughs> He's coming back, isn't he? He could get rid of your boiler, get your cow packs. <laughs> Eco friendly. The Two Ronnies show operated an open-door policy for writers, so all submitted suggestions were considered. Uh, Barker and Corbett would go through the submissions and rate them as if marking schoolwork. Barker himself submitted scripts under the pseudonym Gerald Wiley, so the producers and writers wouldn't be influenced by the fact that it was written by Ronnie himself. But the producers noted that some of these best sketches came from this mystery person. There was a lot of speculation, therefore, who it might be. Uh, some thought, well, it, maybe it's Frank Muir that's doing this, and others thought Tom Stockard. And this guy never turned up for meetings until suddenly there was this el elusive Mr. Wiley was, had invited everyone to this Chinese restaurant where he was going to reveal his identity. So everyone was very keen to attend, dropped what they were doing, went to this Chinese restaurant. So Ronnie Barker stood up and said, I'm, I'm sorry, it was, it was me. And everyone told him to sit down again, so it, because there was a big joke, everyone claimed to be Gerald Wiley, so they thought he was doing this. And so you had to really convince them, actually, it was me. So to, to maintain this illusion that it, that it wasn't him, at one point he even turned down one of his own scripts, saying, oh, look, at, look Wiley's lost it, I wouldn't do this, this sketch here. And the show's producer at the time said the whole point was he would have been embarrassed to put his own name to it because he, was, he felt no one could then say, well, that's not a good script. So that brings out to me that he's quite a humble man. He wanted the talent to, sh to shine out and didn't want his name to be. So people weren't going around touching his shoes. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like anyway. Yeah, and of course Barker had a, particularly, a particular knack for clever wordplay, which uh, is a, a particular appeal to my own um, sense of humour and the kind of stand-up I do. And he wrote the famous, or now famous, Four Candles Fork Candles sketch, in which Corbett plays a shop assistant trying to understand what Barker's customer wants. And that, that was voted the best ever sketch in one television poll, which is some accolade indeed. So uh, Italians was mentioned. Out of a population of 100,000, let's say, in Bedford, how many Italians or people of Italian descent live here? 10%. Yeah, I've got 14,000 as a stat here, so yes, it's, it's over 10%, which is quite an impressive proportion. And the reason for this is after World War II, the town's Marston Valley Brick Company, which was the largest brick factory in the world, found itself short of labour for the reconstruction boom. 
1951, they sent two employees to Naples to recruit 250 men, which sounds entirely dodgy to me. <laughs> just, just turning up in Naples, oh, we want 250 men to take they this to bed. They couldn't refuse. It, they must have done, because it was a success. By the early 1960s, they'd recruited more than 7,500, mostly from the poorer villages of southern Italy. And every recruit had to pass a medical exam, fair enough, but that was in Milan for some reason, and was then given a ticket to England and a bed often in a converted prisoner of war camp. Uh, many Italians worked in the London Brick Company factory, which produced 70,000 bricks weekly per person, which I think is just... 70,000 bricks per person per week. Uh, that's how many bricks. But I guess, I guess the evidence is all around us, including in London and other places. So the largest Italian community was in Bedford, but there were others in Peterborough, Bletchley, Loughborough and Nottingham, so in a similar kind of area. Uh, most of the men didn't last out their four-year contracts due to loneliness, cold weather and, let's face it, shit English food. Um, <laughs> literally, in, case, in, in the case of the cowpats. Um, seeming, seeing some of that for the first time, they must have been bricking it. Um, sorry, I had, I had to get some sort of pun in somehow. But many did stay, obviously, buying houses and paying for their family's passage to come and join them. Any observations or anecdotes about the Italian community here? There must be some in the audience, perhaps. I thought they were very well behaved. Everyone was on the World Cup final. There was no, everyone thought all yeah, the time yeah, yeah, kick off. So it was, was good, was it? Not they were, everyone was. Well, I live in Scotland, and when England got beaten, lots of Italian flags went up. But no, no, no kicking off. Well, that's good to hear. Think they add a lot to the town. There's lovely little uh, restaurants and yeah. little shops and stuff. It's great. Yeah. I, just, I like going to the market on Wednesdays and just hearing the. I've actually gone to trouble learning a couple of Italian. Come sta? Bene, grazie. E lei? Bene, grazie. That's it, like, you know. I just say it to myself. Just trying to fit in. Saying it's your Italian hub. What I've read is that the town has an Italian vice consulate. And there's a local radio station with a weekly programme called Mondo Italiano. Does anyone listen to that? You should, you should, that's what you should do. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you can, if it's a phone-in programme, mm. it'd be ideal. Come that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I, I don't know about you, but that, that hour has, has flown by. We've got three minutes left in which to thank everyone and do the final, final words. So... Um, it's a shame that it, it, I've, I've enjoyed this. But please thank the guests. Uh, we've had Adam Vincent, Tiffany Fitharan, Simon Munnery, and Paul Revel. And can I also thank the staff here at the Studio Theatre and at the Bedford Fringe Festival, who, like many of us, have had to work in more challenging circumstances than usual this year. So thank you to you. So I've got a final on this day, which uh, is comedian Joe Brand. So not from Bedford, as far as I know but she was born on this day in 1957. So here's a little couple of quotes from her to end the show with. So the first one, my ex-boyfriend came round last night, which was weird because I didn't even know he was in a coma. <laughs> and secondly, you know it's time for a New Year's resolution to lose weight when you step on a talking scale and it says, one at a time, please. <laughs> well, it's all been rather lovely. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>